This is Karen with NewClevelandRadio.net, and it is time for Brief Belief. And as we've been talking about for the last five-plus months, um, brief is real. It's different for all of us. And um, we all have to figure out a path to get through. But having a grief coach may be part of the answer because they've been there. They know how they have maneuvered. And that's how I found our guest for today. And Jennifer is with us. And when I read your bio, Jennifer, um, I don't know. I just got goosebumps because you made a big leap after everything you went through. So could you share your story with our listeners and our panel that is surrounding you probably are going to jump in and ask you questions along the way? Sure, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. It is such an honor to be here um, speaking with everyone today. Um, I'm happy to share my story. And my story, I guess, you know, starting at the beginning of my my widow journey, um, is this was October 15th of 2011, and it was a regular Saturday. My husband had been invited to a bachelor party. And um, so, of course, you know, the plan was for him to go. This was in New Orleans, in the city, and all of the guys were meeting there for the weekend. And my husband was a man who never went out. He was a homebody. Um, we had a two-year-old daughter and he just loved to be home with his girls, you know? So I was encouraging him to go. I said, go have a good time, please. You know, just see the guys and relax. And so he did, he went and, um, he left the house. It was a regular, just, you know, kiss goodbye. And I'll see you tomorrow. Um, and he called me from the car on the way which was awesome because I got to talk to him for about 45 minutes straight until he got there. And, and then it was goodbye. You know, I'm going to, I'll text you when I get back to the hotel room. And so, you know, I was normal Saturday night. I'm home with Claire. I went to sleep. I was for whatever reason, I woke up at about four 30 in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. And I looked at my phone and there was no text. And then, um, you know, we got up, it was 9 a.m. and no text and then 10 and he was supposed to come home to watch the Saints game at noon. So then noon comes around and he still hadn't texted me, hadn't gotten in touch with me. He wasn't home. So then I get on the phone with the guys and I said, did you guys go to breakfast? Did you go somewhere? I haven't heard from him what's going on. And they said, we haven't seen him since last night. He left the bar. At about 4.30, he left by himself. He went like that to them because he said, I'm tired, I'm going to go. And they stayed out. Like I said, he was not a party guy. So he um, that was the last that they saw him. And uh, his friend said, well, okay, I'm going to go check out the hotel room and just see if he's been there, if there's any sign of him, whatever. So he goes to the room. He said, there's no sign that he even came back. It doesn't look like he came back. So go call your parents, get them to watch the baby. And then you come down here and I'm going to go get in touch with the police. And he's saying all this to me. And I'm just like, what, what are you, what is happening? Um, so by this time it's about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I called my parents. My dad came with me. My mom watched Claire. And so we went, um, down, downtown New Orleans, trying to retrace steps and I had pictures of Brent and I was, you know, showing the police, police were, were walking the French quarter, asking questions and we were coming up with nothing. So we decided to try and um, track his phone. And so we, Sprint was not cooperating, but we ended up tracking his phone at about eight o'clock at night. Um, to a junkyard that was like three miles from the bar. And so we had a little 
powwow conversation. The police were still there. We said, we're going to go check out the junkyard and see if we can find the phone or him. You know, we didn't know. Um, so we get to the junkyard and it was about nine o'clock at night. It's dark. There's no lights in there. There's pit bulls and Rottweilers barking underneath the fence. It was like barbed wire fence all around the top. And we couldn't get in touch with the owner because this was Sunday night, so we couldn't get in there. But the police had called the fire department to come out. So they came out with their trucks and they put up the ladder and they had the two firemen at the top with their spotlights and they were shining the lights down into the into the um, place to just check it out and scan everything. And then they would say, okay, Jennifer, we're gonna shut off the lights, see if you can, um, we're gonna call the phone and we're gonna see if we could see it light up in the junkyard. So we did that for probably an hour. We just kept doing that over and over again. And so by this time it's about, I don't know, 1030 at night and um, people started leaving and the police started leaving and then the firemen left and I'm still standing there and I, two detectives came up to me and said, um, okay, ma'am, we just think you should go home and get some rest, try and get some sleep and just let us do our job. And I was like, for real? He just said that to me. I said, I'm not leaving. I don't have my husband. Where's my husband? Um, where's everybody going? I was so just in shock and confused and I didn't really have a choice. So I left, um, left with my dad, went back to, to their house. Cause that's where Claire was. And, um, and I just, went into the back bedroom, climbed into the bed with her. My mom had set up a, like a little nightlight that was next to the dresser because she gets scared in the dark. And I just went into the room and of course I wasn't going to sleep. I wasn't sleeping. You know, I, my brain was just exploding and I was panicking and I was literally just like physically rocking myself. And I just said, you know, Brent, give me a sign. I need a sign. Please tell me that you're okay. I just want to get a sign from you. Please give me a sign. And um, the light from the little nightlight had cast a shadow on the wall that was directly in front of me. And it was Brent's silhouette on the wall. And so I saw it and I just stopped and I, I looked away because I said, no. So that's not a good sign. Give me another sign. I need a different sign that you're okay, just give me a different sign. And then I looked back over at it and I saw him, you know, I saw the silhouette and and I just, I knew in that moment that he was gone. My head was trying to tell me otherwise, you know, like maybe he's in jail, maybe he ran away, like trying to make sense of it. But when I saw that, I just knew in my heart that he he was gone. So the next morning, probably right at eight o'clock, we got a call from the coroner's office and they needed us to come down to the coroner's office and identify him. Um, so I went with my parents and my brother um, and you know, walked into the coroner's office, this big long table, and it was his picture that was upside down. I could see through, you know, I could see that it was him, but I sat down and he flipped the picture over and he slid it across the table to me. And, and he said, we don't want to believe that this is your husband, but we think this is your husband. And, um, and I was so in shock. I just, I said the stupidest thing. I said, no, I'm like, we're supposed to be going to the pumpkin patch today. This was October 15th. I said, no, that's not what we're doing today. <laughs> we're going to the pumpkin patch. That's what we're doing. I mean, I was out of my mind, you know, um, completely in shock. I stood up. I almost passed out. My brother was there. My dad was there. They were kind of holding me up. And, um, and I, we walked out and it was the nightmare continued. Um, we did find out that, so the detectives 
that were put on the case, they uh, found out that he had left the bar. Um, when he left the bar by himself, he was followed by someone. And he was supposed to take a, a right to go to the hotel. And instead he took a left, he just turned the wrong way. And this person followed him down the street. He was one block from the party. He was one block from the guys. And um, it was a dark street and this person attacked him from behind and uh, hit him on the head, took his wallet, took his phone. So he had no identification on him at all and left him on the sidewalk. Um, and someone was coming down the sidewalk and found him and called 911. But from what I was told from someone at the hospital and from the report, it said that he, um, he was already, he was already dead, like on the sidewalk. So there was no even working on him. Um, but yeah, that was, that was what. That was the beginning of your journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, as I listen, I think to myself that you were grieving without probably knowing it when you didn't get that first text or phone call in the evening when he went back to the hotel. Um, yeah. Maybe you were just protecting yourself at that point. Yeah. I mean, so, I, and I remember that feeling too, like you said, I, I remember that feeling of, okay, why didn't he text me? That's so unlike him, but then brushing it off right away. Like, uh, it's okay. It's okay. It's going to be okay. He's probably doing something else. Like he couldn't take two seconds to text me like he said he would. <laughs> but yes, I had that nervous feeling in my stomach. I, I remember that morning when when I saw he didn't text. I was like, this is, it's not right, but okay. You know, he never goes out. Maybe he just went back to the room and fell asleep. And that's what I was thinking, you know, or trying to make sense of. So yeah, um, that was... You know, from there, it was making the funeral arrangements and trying to, um, you know, handle things with a two-year-old and explain things at a certain level. And especially the way that he was killed, there was, you know, there's no, there's no good way to explain anything. I, I had no idea what I was doing at that point. Um, so it was basically sit her down and draw a picture of heaven, draw an angel, whatever. And she immediately says, oh, okay, can I have some candy? You know, <laughs> she's just, it's not registering at all. Um, so yeah, it was probably couple of weeks after that so we had the funeral a week a week later um and then I was trying to decide if I was going to go back to work what does that look like what am I what am I doing am I supposed to stay in my house you know I had all these questions and identity issues and you know how we all go through who am I? What am I doing? What, what just happened? That kind of thing. Um, and then it was the weekend of Halloween. Uh, so literally two weeks after he was killed, um, Claire and I, my mom who lives like 25 minutes away from us, she said, I'm going to run some errands. Come with me. We'll just go have some lunch and go run some errands. And I wasn't doing anything that day. I said, sure. So she said, meet me at this McDonald's. It's a um, little suburb, sleepy town, suburb, meet me at the McDonald's. So I met her there and um, we got our food. We were sitting down in the booth and Claire had to use the bathroom and we were potty training her at that time. So it was an issue, um, which all got thrown out the door <laughs> with all of my stuff that was happening. So Potty training was put on hold, but we were trying. So my mom ran her into the bathroom and I was sitting there 
just like eating my french fries in a daze and I could hear behind the counter some kind of like the workers and their voices were getting louder and they were talking just above each other and something was happening so I was trying to pay attention to what they were doing and I heard one of them say oh blah 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 he's he's coming this way and right outside the window to my right a police car comes screeching up right outside the window the cop jumps out he's got a gun in his hand like this he runs into the mcdonald's goes into the men's bathroom comes back out gun still up jumps in the car and then screeches away and then my mom comes walking out of the ladies restroom and said guess who just went to potty (laughs) um i mean and the whole time i was just like I'm eating my fries and just watching the world. And, and then I I just, they said behind the counter, they said that the bank right across the street had been robbed and the person was coming over to hide around the McDonald's that I was in. And like I said, this is like sleepy town, USA. This like nothing happens in this suburb, nothing bad, but it was happening right close to me. And I felt just the weight of all of this violence and things that were happening. And I did not feel safe and I freaked out in the McDonald's and I had a panic attack. And so my mom, who was oblivious to what just happened, I I told her what happened and I started to hyperventilate and she just had to hold onto my shoulders and, and take me outside so I could get a deep breath because I felt like I was being suffocated. And I, I, I said, I can't go anywhere. I, I feel like I need to just either lock myself in my house and not ever do anything. I said, I have to get out of here. I have to, I have to go. So I left straight from there. I went home and I bought Claire and I um, tickets to go to Turks and Caicos. Uh, Providencialis is a little island in the Caribbean. And that was where Brent and I used to go on vacation. So we would go like two or three times a year and we loved it there. It was very peaceful, very quiet, a great place to escape. And I said, I need, I need to go there. So I booked our tickets for Thanksgiving. That was happening in just a few short weeks. And I said, there's no way I'm even going to attempt to have a normal holiday. I don't want to play like this is a normal Thanksgiving and try and sit and have, you know, normal family time. I said, I'm leaving, I'm I'm gonna go. And so we went and I was supposed to go, I went for like a week and a half and my really good friend, she came with me, my friend from college. She said, I'm not going to let you go by yourself, especially if you're going to go with Claire. I'll go with you. And then you can just, if you need to go for a walk on the beach, or if you need to have some time to yourself, I'll be there to watch her for you and babysit and just be there for moral support. Right. And so she came with me. And then probably on day three, I said, I think, I think I want to stay here. I think I want to, I think I want to live here. And, and she said, okay, um, well, let me, let me take a look at some things and see if we can make this work. She's an engineer. So she's super type A, which I love her for, because at the time I had widow brain so bad. I couldn't think I couldn't even like add two numbers. So she sat down with my finances and looked at everything and said, let's see if we can make this work. If you can find a place for this amount. Um, then you can do it. And so she went through everything with me and she said, yeah, she's like, I think you could do this for a year. You know, if that's what you want to do. And I said, yes, I think I want to do that. I want to do that. Um, so by day five, I had contacted someone. I knew where to, I wanted to be that I felt safe. And, um, and this person agreed to rent their place out to me for a year. And so a month later, Claire and I packed up four suitcases and went to go and stay on the island. I didn't know a single person. I didn't know anybody. Um, What I was feeling was um, 
that I was very distracted and losing time and focus with her at this really critical time in her life. And my parents who are amazing, they said, come and live with us. We can help you. You come stay with us, please. We'll take care of you. We'll help with Claire. We can, you know, take care of her. And I knew that they would do it. I knew that they would bend over backwards and just let me be a pile of a mess on their sofa for however long I needed to be. They would let me do that. But I decided, I said, I got to figure this out. Like I have to figure out how to be a mom, how to be a single parent, how to process what I'm going through, how to support her, what she's going through at two, what's going through her little mind. And I, I knew I needed to do that myself. I knew I needed to just be alone to do that. And so, um, so yeah, it was, the intent was to go down there, be um, in a peaceful, quiet place and process what had happened and heal. And that was exactly what I got. And it was the best decision I ever, I have ever made. So, so as I look, as I look out at the panel, I mean, we're all sort of going through your story with you and Allison, you've been sitting there like really acknowledging, um, you know, tell me what maybe you heard or how made you feel? Yeah, th there were a couple of points that knowing, like probably at 4.30 in the morning is when it happened. And and that knowing, I think, is familiar, certainly familiar to me. Um, the morning my husband died, the the song from Ghost came on. And I knew that was the day. Mm -hmm. um, driving up to see my father with my family, we said, it was a beautiful day. Today would be a good day to die. And the time we said that was when he died. And so that knowing is familiar to me in your story. And then the other place where I really landed was the panic attack, where it all becomes too much. It's, it's, you can take, you're stretching, 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 and then there's no more stretch. And then the last piece was, you know, the, the sort of courage to go to an island and and knowing that that's what you wanted and trusting yourself trusting yourself far enough in this state to go i may not know much or this is what i heard i may not know much but i know that this is what i need in this moment for myself, for my relationship with my daughter. And so that really landed. The question that I had about that was it was a place that you went often with your husband. Mm -hmm. And was that comforting or distressing or both? How was that for you? There, it was not distressing at all. It was so comforting. It was so comforting because every time we went there together, we had the best time, you know, it was, it was vacation. It was beautiful. It's fun. We just enjoyed ourselves so much there. And so being there just made me feel close to him, you know, mm. and brought me comfort. And it was always, it was always happy memories there. So, yeah. Mm. Lovely. Yeah. Um, I had lots of instances where my husband, after he left, was very present. And there was one, I was going up to a writing workshop and I got off the bus, I was in the bathroom and um, 
my husband had been turning lights on and off, turning music on and off a lot at home. And I was in the bathroom and someone came and started banging on the door and said, is your husband on the bus? And I burst into tears because it was clear to me that though my husband was not alive, he was definitely on the bus with me. So that's yeah. what raised up as you were speaking. Thank you so much for sharing your story. So, so, wow. Oh. I kind of feel like I'm speechless just listening to your story. It was, um, it was, it was a lot to go through and, um, I just want to acknowledge your, your experience and your grief and, um, Thank you as well for sharing it. I am curious about your daughter and how did she process through this um, moving as well? Like how did that, how, what was that like for the two of you, for her and for the two of you? Um, it was, it was actually fantastic. And I'll tell you a kind of a strange story. Um, you know, we, this island is a British island and they had a little private school there. So I was able to put her in this pre-pre-K program where it was just like two half days a week at first, I think. And which was great. You know, I felt like I, as soon as I would drop her off, I'd walk back to the car in tears, get in the car, you know, go. I had three hours that I knew that I, and then I'd go pick her up. Um, that I could really let the tears out and just schedule my really hard grieving time, <laughs> I guess so. Um, and then, of course, I mean, I was crying all the time and, and I would tell her, I miss daddy, I miss daddy. You know, there was always just this open honesty. Um, I wasn't trying to hide anything, but it just those really, really rough times is is when I would do that while she was in school. But um, the second year that we were there, cause we were supposed to stay for a year. We ended up staying for two and a half, almost three years. Uh, after the first year, I wasn't ready to come back. I decided to stay a little longer. And then I decided to stay a little longer and I probably could have stayed longer, but she was starting kindergarten. And so that's what I, I felt like that was a good starting point for us to come back and figure out, you know, my life here. Um, but her the second year that we were there um it was the first day of school and we walked in to go and meet the teachers and they were giving us just a bio sheet with a little bit about themselves and her teacher was from Missouri and she was also a children's bereavement specialist so here I am running away to an island with like a total of 20,000 people on the island, a handful of expats, like not a lot. And her teacher is a children's bereavement specialist. And I stood there in the classroom. I just, and I was reading through this and I, I'm like, I looked up at the universe. I'm just like, are you kidding me? You know, like, this is what you need. It's like, Jennifer, this is what you need. Here it is, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was pretty incredible. So I had this support that was handed to me for her. And of course I met with the teacher. I told her everything. And we started doing Saturday sessions with this bereavement specialist who was incredible. She would sit down with her. They do a lot of art therapy at that age. Cause she was three. Um, but it was, again, exactly what we needed at the right time. You know, um, I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I was struggling. I felt like we were doing okay. And I was addressing things as they would come up, but having that outside help, that professional opinion to work through whatever it was, I, di I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing with her at that age. Um, that was amazing. So it worked out. 
That is amazing. Um, can I ask another question? I don't want to hog here, but I do have a question about um, when you came back. Um, what was it like for you to come back after having been there? And I'm I'm get, I'm assuming that you felt very safe there and very comforted. And so, did you have apprehension about coming back? And when you came back, did you come back to your house? Um, what was all of that experience like? I did not. I I ended up selling my house while I was down there. I came back one summer and sold the house um, because my house was a suburb house, lots of families around us. We were, you know, talking about having another baby. This was the track of my life was in this suburban housewife neighborhood. And I felt like I didn't belong there anymore. I said, I, that's, if that's not me and that's not my path, then what is, you know? So I sold my house and it was scary coming back just because I really didn't have any direction. It's like the whole world is open to you, right? You can go anywhere that you want to. <laughs> that's kind of a crazy feeling. I mean, I had, I had taken this, you know, I guess adventure, a temporary adventure, but at that point I could have gone anywhere with her that I wanted to. Um, but we chose to come back to Louisiana because my family is here. My parents are here. And again, like I said, they are awesome. They really stepped in to support us and they kind of became like, you know, a second set of parents for her. And, um, and I was trying to, you know, figure out where I was going to live, what I was going to do. Um, the, aspect of what I went through as far as like a trial goes because the whole time that I was down on the island the detectives were in constant contact with me so it was they were keeping me updated on trial dates that were set and then the trial date would approach they would prepare me for it and then it would get postponed and that would go for like three or four months. And then I would build myself up and prepare for it again and know what I was going to say and whatever. And then it would get postponed again. And that went on for four years. So I honestly felt like I could not move forward with my life in any direction until that was put to a stop and just put in my past, I needed to get over that hump to, um, to know what I was going to do to just feel more comfort. It was, I had so much anxiety. I had so much anxiety over that because it was just a constant prepare, 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 and then no pushback, prepare, prepare, prepare mentally, physically, like how is this, it's affecting me. And then it would get pushed back again. So it was kind of a nightmare. Yeah, Allison. Um, were there any any things that you did, sort of self-care or self-expression to buffer you as you went through all of this that you put into place? There was a lot of journaling that was happening. Um a lot. I really leaned into that. Um, I was outside every day, uh, walking. I can't even tell you the miles that I walked. <laughs> just being outside, being in the fresh air. But every night I would journal and every night I would journal either. It started off just journaling to him because it, I felt like that was my way of communicating with him. And I honestly felt like so many times he was standing over me as I'm writing, you know, I, he was right there. And I, I felt constantly connected to him, but that was just a way for me to tell him our story. This is what we did today. It was a diary, but it was a letter to him. And um, I didn't have anybody telling me what to do. You know, this was a long time ago. This was 2011. And um, I just, that's I did what felt right that's a lot of this journey was just doing what brings me comfort and it 
logically, you know, doing what I did didn't make a lot of sense to anybody. And thank goodness, nobody tried to talk me out of it. But, you know, I, I did what I was feeling in my heart and what was telling me what was leading me to the places that I was going. Um, and then the things that the things that made me feel good. I mean, in this place that we stayed, I had the bedroom where I had, you know, these, the curtains were shut all the time. And then when I would walk into the living room and the living room area of our condo place faced the pool and faced the beach and the sun was always coming into that room. So I had kind of set up this environment for myself. I was trying to control what I could control, mm -hmm. you know, a lot about grieving is what can we control and what is going to make us feel better, even if it's a tiny little bit better. And so I had my space. I would go in the, in the bedroom where it was dark. If that's what I needed, I needed to be in there and cry. And, and, and I always kept the windows open. I always kept the, the shades open in the living room, no matter what. So I would walk out there and the sun was always shining on me. And I just, uh, I tried to control it that way but the journaling thing was what happened at night every night I would write to him I have notebooks and notebooks of, of things that I've I've poured out and that really really saved me it did yeah I also wound up journaling but it was more uh as an anchor to to have me feel sane because my my memories were all jumbled and I felt like I was going crazy. And so when I wrote things down, it was tangible. It still didn't make sense, <laughs> <laughs> but I could see it and I could feel it. And I remember writing a little piece where the memories, it felt like they got all jumbled up in the night and then I would pick them up and they would cut my fingers in the morning. And I would put them in place. And I wasn't sure if it was the right place, but it was a place. Mm -hmm. And I was writing this crazy stuff to make sense of my insides. Yeah. So I, I also used a lot of journaling, a different kind of journaling, but similar um, inline passage. So Jennifer, I really admire your fortitude. Had you ever been tested before where you knew you had that? No, not like that. No, I, I had never, I had never felt the pain that I felt and the anxiety that I was feeling. I, I, it, it's, it, I can't even describe it. You can't even describe it. I feel like I would feel like at night, especially like when I was trying to go to sleep and the brain starts spinning and I, I felt like my skin was inside out. I, I, it was like I was a ball of nerves and I had never, I had never felt anything like that in my life. And my dad told me when I said that I was going to go down to this island and I said, I'm going to go for a year. And he said, oh, you know, maybe go for six months, maybe, you know, maybe a year is too long. And I said, no, I'm like, a year is going to go by like that. I said, six months is nothing. I don't want to be here for those days, like Father's Day, Mother's Day, uh, Valentine's Day, any holiday thing thrown in my face. I said, nope, I'm not going to be here for that. And he just sat there and then he said, he's like, nobody knows how you're feeling right now. It's like, baby, nobody knows. So do what you feel like you need to do. And I said, okay, okay. And do you feel that your parents are unusual in that regard? Because, you know, I'm uh, aware of other conversations we've had around grief where a lot of people are, you know, like living by committee and um, everybody's chiming in, which may or may not be what's right for that individual. So did you, you didn't have any of that, it sounds like. No, I knew when he said that. So my mom was right there and she stood up from the table and she went into the kitchen and she took out cleaning stuff and she just started scrubbing <laughs> the kitchen yeah. counter. And she was like, like, she just did not want to tell me 
anything else, even though in her head, she's like, baby, don't go, don't go, don't do it. You know, she never said anything to me, which is shocking. I can't believe she didn't say anything to me. Um, but she, again, cause he was right. He said, nobody knows how you're feeling right now. You know, we can't, we can't even begin to understand what this feels like. So do what you feel like you need to do. And my mom. It's very wise know, of him. It sounds like. He didn't try to stop me, which yeah. is incredible. Right. <laughs> but, and then there was one other thing, just the nonsensical suddenness of it, you know, that, you know, with people who we know are dying, you know, there's, you don't really prepare, but at least it's not complete out of the blue shock. And um, that, and plus that incident at the McDonald's, you know, that sense of safety and security, just to have those things taken um, yeah. and no way to prepare for it. No, no. So I does never... that still show up? Uh, no, no. Um, I, I had, I had those couple of years where I was able to, I guess, regain my, my confidence. You know, here I've, I, I did this thing. I'm on my own. I'm doing this. We're okay. We're okay. <laughs> Just kept telling myself that <laughs> we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Do you ever have um, doubts? Um, not. I mean, it was difficult traveling with a three-year-old. You know, so um, that was there was a couple of times like getting through customs that were a little bit scary. Um. But it, it all worked out. It was, it all worked out. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, there was fear, but it was kind of like, well, there's the fear. I'm doing it anyway, you know? <laughs> yeah. How did your daughter handle, I know she was young. Okay. And they say, you know, our children adapt, but here she had been spending time with your parents. Now you move down there. Your parents aren't there, just the two of you. Um, and she knows daddy's never coming back. D did she voice any of that at any time? Yeah, she did. Not so much the missing my parents part, but, you know, with kids, they, they process things. Who knows, right? Uh, and so she would, out of the blue, just say things, you know, we're driving down the street and she would say something about daddy or we're playing at the park and she would come up to me and say something about daddy and um a lot of times though she would say I miss daddy I I just I miss daddy um or things that certain things that she would do certain behaviors that I I was I was questioning myself as a parent and and asking is she doing this because she misses her dad is she doing this because her dad's not here is she doing this because I was supposed to do this and I'm a terrible parent. Those were the doubts that were in my head every single day was that part of it was the parenting part of it. And how is this going to affect her? What kind of kid is she going to turn into um, because of this? And how can I, how can I keep her on a good path? And I, I had so many doubts that I could do that myself, you know, um, that was, uh, the biggest doubting part of myself in everything. I'm I'm still sitting here, even though I've read the bio, um, and listening to it though makes it. I hurt for you, and I'm sure that's what your girlfriend felt and your parents felt as well but you had a really strong support system mm -hmm. and we don't always have that. I mean, Allison, when your husband died, you had to support your mother-in-law. I mean, <laughs> you had to take time away from you for her. And I know you probably wouldn't have done anything any differently, but it, did it feel unfair at the time? Are you asking me? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I could barely hold myself together. So another person. And still, you know, today I took her to the dentist. Five hours. She's 99. Well, at least she's um, still going to the dentist. <laughs> yep. Um. So, so, yeah. And she was very angry at me that my husband died. She had decided that if I had done something different, he would not have died of stage four pancreatic cancer. And there was no reason to it. It was the grief. But given that I was grieving, that was not something I could even cope with. And she was honestly a nightmare for at least a year after he died. And it's understandable. Absolutely. But it's, but it's hard for you who are also grieving to be handling those emotions as well. Um, and that's why I was asking about your daughter, Jennifer, because as she has gotten older, you know, you took out so much time to really, really be there for her. Um, you know, again, almost like Allison, you almost had to, sh you know, share your grief time with her. I call that when grievers collide. <laughs> I <laughs> grieving the same thing and everybody's in a different place and you just you just bump up against each other sometimes and it can be really difficult. I had one last question, Jennifer. Um as as time goes on, the, the grief changes. It it lives, it keeps living, it will live forever, but it changes. It's probably changed for you. It's probably changed for your daughter. So how have you dealt with that? Like as you're going through your changes and so is she, how have you done that? Um, there's a lot of, uh, just, well, keeping the conversation open with her, you know, again, as she's 14 now. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a different conversation. And I know as she gets older, more and more things are going to come up. She's going to ask for more details of things. And, um, and I just have to approach that at whatever stage we're at, you know, uh, we do, we talk about her dad all the time and uh we show we do pictures and unfortunately i don't have that many pictures of them together you know um so we just we do that a lot together uh, our friends had made this memory book which was amazing because everybody contributed stories like his high school friends and college friends they sent in pictures of them when they were little and all these things together. And then they, my friends put it in a bound book mm -hmm. um, to give to Claire. So it's her book. And she goes and looks at that all the time because um, it's nice to have those stories and those specific memories, which otherwise I, I wouldn't have known a lot of those stories. Those were his friends from high school that, that gave us that. So that was a beautiful tribute to him and um very thoughtful yeah it was amazing it was a really great um thoughtful thing that they did for her, yeah so. and it keeps him alive and yes. and who he was through his life in in a way that she wouldn't have otherwise i know that that's was, that's great fabulous. wow well our time went very quickly today so hopefully we can have you back again jennifer um, tell our listeners about your podcast and you are also a grief coach as well, correct? Yes. So my podcast, I started my podcast a couple of years ago. It's widow 180, the podcast. And I do a lot of interviews with widows, um, because these are stories, stories of hope and the people that I have met throughout the years those were the people that I wanted to get in touch with were the widows 
who had been through, they were maybe two years ahead of me, three years ahead of me. And, you know, I'd meet them and, and see that they were smiling and laughing and just thriving and living happy lives. And I could not see a way out of the way that I was feeling and the hurt and the pain. And I needed to talk to her. I wanted to talk to her. How did she do that? How did she get through what I am feeling right now? That's what I want to know. And so that's what helped me get through my, um, the tough years, you know? Uh, so those are the stories that I put on Widow 180, the podcast, are the stories of hope. These are widows who have gone back to school and they're just living these fulfilling, amazing lives. And I love, love talking to them. Um, the Widow Squad is another um, part of my journey. The Widow Squad is uh, our online community, but we also just started a podcast, the Widow Squad podcast. And um, I've partnered up with two widows that I've met over the last couple of years, and they are um, my co-hosts on the show. And it's been a lot of fun doing that. We usually pick a topic. So we'll say, you know, taking off your ring. That's always a big one. When do you take off your ring? When did you do it? When did you do it? What's the right time? You know? And so we pick a topic and then we each kind of share our experience with, um, with that particular widow dilemma, I guess. Um, so yeah, those, those are the two. I'm actually on two podcasts now, but yeah, you can find the episodes Widow 180 um, or you can go to uh, widowsquadpodcast.com and listen there. And we'll put it all in the show notes so everybody will know. Um, and Again, we want to thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, we'll be back again next month, and Allison will be leading us. And uh, I think she's going to maybe surprise us with what the topic is. So everybody have a great day, and we'll see you in the spring. Thank you. Bye-bye now.